This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. China's economy has been in the news lately as GDP growth in 2018 was the slowest since 1990. To talk through the drivers of what we might call bumpy deceleration, as some of the analysts have called it, policy tools available to cushion the impact, trade tensions, and much, much more. We're joined by Andrew Tilton, Goldman Sachs Chief Asia Economist. Andrew, welcome to the program. Thank you. Nice to be here. In November of last year, 2018, your team published an outlook on China, which you predicted what you call bumpy deceleration of the economy of China, certainly panning out in light of recent reductions in the growth projections there. What's the magnitude of the slowdown and what's basically driving it? Well, I think it's confusing to a lot of people because if you look at GDP, there hasn't been much of a slowdown. GDP growth was 6.6% last year. And in the latest data point, fourth quarter GDP was 6.4 year over year. So looking at those numbers, it doesn't seem like there's been much of a slowdown. But GDP is unusually smooth in China. And so we, as have some other analysts, have tried to create our own metrics for what's going on in the economy. We use something we call the current activity indicator, which rolls up a lot of different monthly economic data to try to get a high-frequency estimate for how the economy is doing. And if we look at that measure, it slowed from the first half of last year to our latest reading for December. What's driving the slowdown and what sectors in particular are where are we seeing deceleration? We're seeing it pretty broadly, and that's a difference from the last time we had a slowdown in 2015. We saw a comparable slowdown or almost as big of a slowdown but it was very concentrated in heavy industry. This time we're seeing some effects in investment, we're seeing weaker consumer spending, and in the last couple of months, weaker exports as well. And I think there are a couple causes for that. On the export side, of course, the trade war has gotten a lot of attention, but global growth is also slowing, so that's been an important reason why exports have softened. On the internal side, Chinese policymakers spent a lot of 2017 and early 2018 trying to address some of the systemic risks in their economy, including tightening policies in a number of areas, such as shadow banking, trying to constrain shadow banking and really shrink the so-called shadow banking sector. And And by tightening up credit. Tightening up credit. I mean, they were almost too successful in doing that. And that resulted in tighter credit availability to households and businesses who are now, partly because of that, spending less. Amidst all the slowdown, where are we poised to continue to see pretty strong growth in China? Still some healthy numbers and growth. What's still driving the growth? One area where we think we'll see better growth is infrastructure spending. That's something that's driven by government decisions, and that's a tool the government uses to try to support the economy. And I wouldn't overstate the weakness in consumer spending. It has slowed, but is still growing at a healthy clip. You still have reasonable household income growth and relatively high levels of household saving. So some of the weakness we're seeing in consumer spending is resulting from the tightening in credit availability and the fading out of incentives for things like auto purchases that had been in place in 2017. So insofar as that slowdown in spending is driven by government policies of tightening, I think it's less worrisome than something that was occurring on its own. The Chinese economy has been growing pretty fast for a long period of time. Now that it's starting to slow, when might we see it bottom out? We think we can see it bottom out late first quarter or second quarter. I think we still have a few more months of pretty weak activity because we haven't seen a turnaround. You know, Again, going back to the previous framework, on the external side, global growth hasn't turned around, and we don't have a resolution on the trade tensions yet. 
And domestically, policymakers have talked about doing a lot of easing, but we haven't actually seen that much yet. We think we'll see easier fiscal policy, easier monetary policy, but as yet the shift has been much smaller than we have seen in past downturns. So you mentioned boosting infrastructure spending as a tool to get the economy going a little faster again. What other tools might the government deploy to cushion the blow? We've been hearing a lot about tax cuts. So that's not been a typical tool of the government in past downturns. Typically, the government tries to spend the money itself. So this is, in some ways, a more American-style Consumer-led recovery, yeah. 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 I mean, the advantage of a tax cut is it works fast. If you cut taxes, people know that the tax cut is coming for sure. They may change their spending behavior fairly quickly. The disadvantage is you can't be guaranteed that people will spend it. If they're worried about the outlook, they may just save the money. So you've got a little bit of a trade-off between time and potentially effectiveness, or as economists call it, the multiplier effect of that tax cut. We're likely to see a tax cut, but we don't know exactly when and how big. And on the infrastructure side, that has been the favored tool in the past, and we think we will see some of that again this time. So increased government spending on infrastructure, possibly a tax cut with more consumer spending. What does that mean for inflation, the inflation outlook there? Inflation has been coming a bit lower, particularly on the producer price side of things. The consumer inflation is moderate right now and I don't think is a constraint on what policymakers are likely to do. At this point in time, with growth slowing and demand pressures weakening, you know, we're not particularly concerned about inflation as being a constraint. If anything, I think policymakers are probably worried about producer price inflation falling too much. That caused a lot of problems back in 2015 and 16 because some of the more indebted companies were having trouble servicing their debts. I don't think we're in the same situation today, but that's probably a concern should inflation fall further. Has the slowdown affected investor appetite for China assets? And what asset classes are attracting the most interest? What are people shying away from? Investor appetite has been muted. In the public equity markets or overall? Well, I would say foreign investors have been a little bit cautious. Domestic investors have been extremely bearish throughout much of 2018. In fact, in recent years, 2018 stands out as a situation where domestic investors were significantly more worried about the Chinese outlook than foreigners. It's often been the reverse. Mm -hmm. And the domestic investors turn out to be right in their worries insofar as growth has slowed significantly. You have seen some signs of a better equity market performance recently. The theme that has been more consistent over the past year has been lower rates. So the bond market has rallied on easier monetary policy and lower global rates as well. Goldman Sachs Research hosted a big macro conference in Hong Kong last month. Given all the trends we're discussing, what was on the minds of the clients there? At our conference in Hong Kong, clients were pretty conservative in their expectations for equity returns this year, sort of mid-high single-digit returns, generally thinking Asia would do better than other regions of the world. Most investors had taken on board the idea that the Fed would do relatively little, maybe one or two rate hikes this year pretty sanguine about trade. So we asked clients whether they thought the trade war would escalate or pause, or maybe actually there'd be a formal deal. A relatively small fraction, less than 20% of clients felt that there would be further escalation in a trade war. So I think that's an area where things were even a bit more optimistic than I expected. So as the president of the United States never ceases to remind us, China has a very large trade surplus with the United States. 
which is its largest trading partner still. We talk a lot here about the impact in the United States, but what's the economic impact of that surplus within China? Well, the interesting thing is China has a big surplus with the U.S., as you said, and naturally has attracted a lot of attention from President Trump and others. But it actually doesn't have a big surplus overall. In fact, you know, in recent quarters, it hasn't had a surplus at all. So you've seen a big change from the China of the global financial crisis period. When Export nation. You had yeah. a huge surplus to one that's come down in recent years, been kind of 2 to 3% of GDP, but in the early part of 2018 was actually marginally negative when oil prices were higher. Oh, China's an oil importer. So from that perspective, the weakening current account surplus has been a factor that other things equal would tend to push the currency in a weaker direction. The pattern of trade is such that China runs deficits with a number of other places. It imports a lot of materials and components from other places that then are assembled and exported elsewhere. That's oversimplifying, of course, but in particular, a lot of that deficit that the U.S. has with China is really a deficit with other parts of Asia. With the, China just being the pass-through. China is the pass-through. Now, to be clear, the majority of the deficit with China is with China, but yep. a substantial fraction, something like a third, reflects value added from other parts of Asia that's then combined into a final good in China that goes to the U.S. Yeah. So obviously the president, to get China's attention and try to resolve this issue, put tariffs in place. How have the tariffs affected the economy in China, and what do people expect for the year ahead? The tariffs themselves have been only a part of the reason for the economic slowdown that we've seen last year. As I mentioned, we have a lot of tightening in domestic policies that drove that. So our estimates of the impact of tariffs on exports and that effect on GDP is really only a few tenths of a percentage point. We don't think that's very large. If anything, the effects on uncertainty and suppressing perhaps business investment as businesses wait to see what's going to happen, those might ultimately be bigger than the impact on exports. The effects so far are pretty manageable in the sense that China's currency depreciated about 5% on a trade-weighted basis, a bit more versus the dollar last year. If you think about that, that almost offsets the 10% tariff bracket that the U.S. put on $200 billion of Chinese imports to the U.S. It's only the 25% tariff that went on $50 billion of Chinese goods that's really not been offset thus far. So I think it's manageable, but there's a lot of concern about what would happen should those tariffs escalate. That's the pressure on China. Beyond trade, what are some of the key risks or opportunities that conference attendees were focused on regarding China? I think there's a huge attention on Chinese policy, how much stimulus is going to come and when. Our take is that at the moment, the risk is that perhaps stimulus is a little smaller and later than it has been in the past or than markets expect. So that's a risk in terms of growth on the downside. I think markets are sniffing out the possibility that you know, when we do get stimulus and if we get a more comprehensive resolution on the trade tensions, then that's a potential upside risk, not so much for the first or second quarter in terms of the economy, but maybe for later in the year. Stepping back a bit from the economy at this point in time, Chinese policymakers have been very focused over the past real decade or so, at least, shifting the composition of their economy to something that might be more sustainable in the long term and moving away from big capital spending on infrastructure projects and the like to a more consumer-driven economy like you see in Europe and the United States. Give us a sense of how well they've done and what remains to be accomplished. I think there's a lot 
still ahead on making that transition. I think it's fair to say that many analysts were hoping for a faster transition in this regard. On the one hand, we do see some signs of change. Policymakers have talked about not wanting to overstimulate the economy with infrastructure spending and borrowing. But on the other hand, in the current downturn, it looks like they're going to resort to at least a little bit of that. It's the easy lever to pull. It's an easy lever to pull. And another key goal of the leadership is China's advancement technologically. They want to see strong and sustainable growth, and they want to achieve technological parity or leadership relative to the United States in a number of different sectors. And that probably is going to require more private sector involvement, more innovation. But at the same time, the authorities still want to maintain a strong state sector that still seems to be something that's important to them, that in more sensitive areas of the economy, they want strong state-owned enterprises and enterprises that in many cases can compete abroad. So I think in some cases, there are tensions between those different goals and tensions that haven't been fully resolved. Let's talk about one specific area where there's been a lot of coverage here in the United States and I presume elsewhere. There's a lot of talk about the race on artificial intelligence. In the United States, that's primarily a private sector initiative with lots of companies investing in AI. In China, it has a private sector component, but the state is very focused on leadership there. How do you rate those two models today? Especially in the AI space, people talk about the advantages of the Chinese system is, well, maybe it's more than the system. It's just a large population, first of all. So there's more data, a lot of bigger data, bigger data. (laughs) And the government is willing to provide that data to companies that can use and process it, for example, for a nationwide facial recognition system for use by law enforcement, state security. There are many more faces to analyze, and those are available to public and private companies who want to do work in that area. So from that perspective, bigger data sets, maybe fewer privacy-related restrictions it's a place where you have more to work with. And that's one potential advantage of operating in China. Another is that the state does provide support and funding in different ways for enterprises in that space. It's a goal of top leadership and therefore for companies that need or want to acquire sensitive technology or research, those are things that the government tries to support. One key component for sustainable growth in the long term is more vibrant capital markets. And China's done a lot to modernize its capital markets and a lot of attention on the connections in the equity markets. But there's recently been some changes in terms of fixed income markets, which are typically bigger but get less attention. Talk a little bit about the evolution of the fixed income markets in China. Well, we had a seminal event this week, which is that China is included in the Bloomberg Aggregate Index, one of the largest global bond market indices with well in excess of a trillion and close to two trillion of assets under management following that broader index. So that index will now include China at a gradually increasing weight over the next 20 months, starting in April. That is a major event for global bond markets. Here you have one of the largest bond markets in the world in China that wasn't formally included in these global indices that is not as correlated or historically with them. That will be a huge destination for global capital. Companies, investors will need to learn more about the Chinese bond market. You'll see capital inflows into China, which is important for policymakers at a time when the current account surplus is eroding. Capital inflows from bonds will help support the currency and limit the depreciation pressure. So I think this is a major event, and you'll probably see moves by the other bond indices in the relatively near future to include China, we expect. 
We're taping this right around the Chinese New Year, and what happens after the New Year of years, the Chinese government officials get together and sort of set policy for the year ahead. What should we be looking for out of policymakers in China as we head into March? I think this will be a particularly interesting so-called two sessions meetings. This is so named because they're the National People's Congress and the Chinese People's Political Consultative Committee, I think I got that right, that occur each March are important political meetings where leaders meet in Beijing and often make announcements with respect to policy. They announce the policy targets, for example, the GDP growth target for the year, and also lay out more detail in terms of policies in specific sectors. And so given that we're looking for more economic stimulus this year, the form and size of that stimulus will probably become clear then if it doesn't before then. So I think these meetings this year will be particularly important. So we talked quite a bit about the economy in China and its impact on the United States, but the Chinese economy is a massive factor for other economies in Asia. So the trade tension between the U.S. and China, how does that play out for the rest of Asia? And what are the things we ought to be looking at there and thinking about? I think there are potentially big swings in the impact of demand in other parts of Asia, depending on how trade tensions play out. One thing to say for starters is that Chinese growth itself is important for the rest of Asia. We find that depending on the economy, a one percentage point slowdown in China could mean somewhere between a 0.1 to 0.3% slowdown elsewhere. So there's meaningful sensitivity to China around the region, particularly for the smaller open economies that have more exposure to global trade. But then how the U.S. and China resolve their trade tensions will be important. Say China agrees to buy significantly more U.S. agricultural and energy and perhaps in manufactured goods, maybe even semiconductors. Well, there's some important semiconductor manufacturers in Asia. So to the extent that that demand shifts to the U.S., that displaces potential demand from elsewhere in the region. So I think Korea, memory would be Korea, microprocessors could be Taiwan. So those would be places that would be affected. Energy could potentially affect places like Malaysia, even Australia. So there could be spillover effects from China agreeing to buy a lot more U.S. exports because China doesn't need more than it's buying now. So if it agrees to buy substantially more of that from the U.S., it has to come from somewhere. We had your colleague, Tim Mo on the podcast last year. He also lives in Hong Kong. We asked him his favorite thing about New York, so we have to ask you as well. What do you most look forward to when you're here in New York getting to do? Well, I worked on the U.S. economics team for nine years, so I lived here for nine years. So for me, it's seeing friends that I haven't seen for a while, going back to my old neighborhood at Brooklyn and eating good food. Awesome. Thanks for joining us today, Andrew. Thank you. That concludes this episode of Exchanges Goldman Sachs. Thanks for listening, and we hope you can join us again next time. This podcast was recorded on February 1st, 2019. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed.
The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.